According to our unofficial schedule, the sermon is not supposed to begin until 11 o'clock. So let me tell you a story. <laughs> not encouraging thing happened to me this past week. Once again, I was in line at a pharmacy. You don't think my mic is working? Well, for some reason, my voice is. But, but I was in line at um, the pharmacy at Walmart. And you know how lines are sometimes. They're always confused who belongs where, who belongs where. It was not an organized line. And so I said to those that were scattered about, uh, I'm not in a hurry. Go ahead and get in front of me. And so the line formed, and I found myself almost at the end, but there was a middle-aged lady behind me. And I sensed the Holy Spirit stirring within me, speak to this lady. And so I did. I don't have any idea what I said, but somehow our conversation progressed along, and I made a comment about the second coming of Jesus, that I could hardly wait for the return of our Lord. And she said, I don't understand any of that. I began to ask for an explanation. <laughs> and I said, you know, I've studied all the end times theologies. I can make the arithmetic work among those where arithmetic is involved. But my concern is to get out of bed every morning and seek the will of God and do it. And whatever I believe about the end times isn't going to change a thing. God's going to do it His way. So just seek the will of God and obey Him every day. And Jesus is coming someday. She said, but that's what I don't understand. And I sensed anxiety in her voice. And she said, what's going to happen when I die? And I said, if you're a daughter of the king, if you're in the kingdom, you'll be with Jesus. She said, well, I am, but I hear all these things. Some say I'll sleep in the grave until he comes, and I also heard hints of purgatory. I said, you know, Paul wrote to the Philippians, I'm torn two directions. It is to your benefit if I would stay on in the world and have abundant ministry among you, but for me, be better to die and go be with Christ. As soon as you die, you go into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there you abide with Him. And until He comes again with all the saints, and there's this wonderful resurrection, we have glorified bodies. She said, you know, that's similar to what Jesus said to the thief on the cross, isn't it? I said, yes, it is today. Thou shalt be with me in paradise. And then it was my turn to go to the clerk and hand the prescriptions. And I walked away thanking God. What a beautiful thing it is, isn't it, that the Holy Spirit loves people enough. He loved that woman enough who was struggling about death to put me in front of her and for the Holy Spirit to prompt me to speak to her. Isn't that beautiful? I, I You know, I love to go to Walmart. seems like every time I go, I find... A place of ministry. It's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful time. But that's not what we're to talk about this morning. We'll start the sermon one minute early. 
Next Sunday, February 15th, and the following Sunday brackets what in many ways is the most important week on our TCF annual calendar. Perhaps you might even say the most important week. And it has such importance in the life of our church because it is the most intense expression of why we exist as a church. So this morning as a prelude to next week, we're going to talk about why our missions conference is so important, how that understanding of our purpose has shaped Tulsa Christian Fellowship. So the first question we ask is, why has world evangelism been the driving force of this church? And the first reason is biblical. Jesus had come to Jerusalem 29 A.D. to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in uh, late fall. He stayed in Jerusalem, and then in early winter, perhaps the end of November, the 1st of February, he was in the temple, and as always, the Pharisees were dogging his heels, always trying to bring some criticism. And it was in the midst of that setting where the Pharisees were pushing Jesus, and he was delivering a rather extensive discussion about himself and the kingdom and his role. The crowds always watch. They love to see Jesus confound the Pharisees. And he made an offhand comment as he was talking about sheep and shepherds. He said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, speaking of the Jews. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. That's one of the first hints that Jesus gave about his worldwide mission. And it was not until after his resurrection that the agenda became clear. Jesus had appeared to the apostles and others from time to time, and then he appointed a meeting with them on a particular mountain in Galilee. And they went there to meet him. As we try to harmonize the other accounts of his resurrection appearances and tie them in with what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, probably there were also 500 other people there besides the apostles. And in the distance they saw the Lord... And some among the 500 at first doubted, not the apostles. They had already seen him more than once. They knew the resurrected Lord. But then Jesus came close, and their doubts went away. And he said to them, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and upon earth. And because that's true, I now give you a command. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the age. King James says, world, the Greek word is our own, which really has the idea of an age till the end of the world. And here Jesus clearly gave a commission to his church. 
Now Mark, closing verses of Mark, do not enjoy manuscript integrity, but they do reflect what was a tradition at least among the early Christians. And in that passage, similar words are spoken. Go ye therefore and preach the gospel to all the world, all creation. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. Later, the apostles returned to Jerusalem. Twice before, when they had been meeting in an upper room, Jesus had appeared so, so really miraculously through a closed door, and this was the third time that that happened. They were in an upper room. Luke 24 records this, beginning with verse 46. They were in the upper room, and Jesus appeared to them and said, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And then on the very day, that he ascended, leaving this world to go sit at the right hand of the throne of the Father and there have all things under his control. Be Hebrews uh, chapter 1 describes that because now he has all authority. The eleven were with him. And they began to talk about the future. They didn't understand. They began to ask kinds of questions about the kingdom. Well, at this time you restore the kingdom of Israel and then he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And after he said these things, he was caught up. Again, the worldwide agenda. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. About 65 years later, when Gnosticism was plaguing the church, John the Apostle wrote his own record of the life of Jesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 3, he described that episode when Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, wanting to meet with Jesus, but wanting to meet with him discreetly because, of course, he didn't want the other Jewish leaders to know that he was meeting with Jesus, and so he met with him by night. You know the account. It was in that Jesus, that account, and that record where Jesus said, Unless a man be born of the water of the Spirit, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. Sixty, approximately 65 years later, as John described that scene, he then wrote this, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. Again, it was the plan of Jesus, the design of heaven, that there be a worldwide expansion of that kingdom. So the church was born and the church existed for a few years. 
And then persecution arose, and Saul of Tarsus began to, as Acts chapter 8 tells us, began to actually go in homes and arrest Christians and bring them before the courts. And later on, he talked about that activity. He said every time they were brought before the court and the question was made, what shall we do with these people? I always voted for the death penalty. And out of fear, Christians fled Jerusalem. But notice... Acts 8, 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Speaking of Stephen, on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Notice, except the apostles. Paul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He'd put them in prison but therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Notice, the first ones to begin the worldwide agenda of evangelism was not the apostles. We might say the preachers stayed home, but the folks in the pew went out and evangelized. When God called Saul of Tarsus to be the apostle Paul, he was commissioned then to go into all the world to testify before kings and governors and take the gospel to the Gentiles, and this he did. But one day he wrote saying, I've never been to Rome. I'd like to go to Rome and preach there. But he said, I, I really don't want to go into another man's vineyard. Somebody had already taken the gospel to Rome. There's no record of any apostle ever taking the gospel to Rome. The only conclusion we can reach then, it must have been, shall we say, run-of-the-mill Christians who for one reason or the other went to Rome and preached the gospel. Perhaps some of those from the day of Pentecost had gone. So the commission was not just to the apostles, as some sometimes would argue, the early Christians understood the commission was to all of us. And so the gospel spread through province after province, nation after nation, and finally encompassed the entire Mediterranean basin. That's the biblical reason why world evangelism so drives us at TCF because we are obedient to the command of our Lord. But why is it such a driving purpose at TCF? Well, we say first because it's a commission Jesus gave to his church, but the second reason for this church is it is God's purpose for this church's existence. You know, one of the things that contributes to mental health is to have some kind of an external focus, some kind of a purpose, some, some, something you're doing in the world rather than just existing and thinking about yourself. Now, early on, TCF's purpose was very clear, wasn't it? It was born out of ministry on the restless ribbon and the purpose was to reach into that community and see people delivered and healed and saved. 
and then after deliverance to be taught how to live free. It's very difficult for us to imagine. I don't think we, until we get to heaven will we ever know the value of what was done at Jesus' end. As people not only experienced deliverance, but were taught how to live free. And that's important. <laughs> and the work that Gordon and Terry and, and uh, Philip and, and, and Robert and, and that these did, not only involved in deliverance, but teaching people how to live free in Jesus Christ. That was the purpose in those days. The second purpose was to show to all the world that the Holy Spirit's alive. The Holy Spirit's alive. There's supernatural. God intends for the church to live supernaturally. And TCF was the only show in town for a long time that was presenting that particular point of view. That was the purpose. But after a while, the restless ribbon was gone. The drug scene had changed. And now there were a plethora of churches in Tulsa proclaiming life in the Holy Spirit. Many of them because the leadership of those churches first met the Holy Spirit here at TCF. What was the purpose of the church? And I can remember when Chuck and Bill and I prayed about this. What, what now are we supposed to be doing? What is the purpose of the church? Now, at that time, in the middle or late 1980s, there were about a 1,000 churches in Tulsa. Now, I know that because Chuck and I began a minister's prayer meeting once a month at the Old City of Faith cafeteria. It was Chuck's idea. I was implementing it. And in order to do that, I tried to get the names and addresses of every minister in Tulsa. And as I recall, it came up with 986. Think of that. <laughs> I'm sure I missed some. So there must have been a thousand churches in Tulsa at that time. And as we prayed about the purpose of TCF, we came, first of all, to this conclusion that any time God calls a church into existence, he does so for a reason, and he surely didn't intend to duplicate the same thing a thousand times. So what was his call at this point in the life of TCF? In those early days when TCF was really sort of, even among other things, an event center, everybody who was anybody in the charismatic movement spoke at TCF. Corey Tin Boom, remember Maria Von Trapp, the uh, Fort Lauderdale Five, everybody who was anybody came here to speak. And during those days, the leadership of the church, sometimes there'd be missionaries come through. And so TCF's leadership began to pray, Lord, could you just give us one missionary? And God responded when the Flemings heard the call and went out. And then it sort of became a little bit of a flood. There's Millard and Shirley Parrish. Millard was church administrator. These, this couple was so important in the body of the church. The Norcoms, uh, Brother Norcom was an elder. These, these went. <laughs> 
went out to serve the king. Terry and Mary Ligon. Terry and Mary Ligon started at Cyprus and then to Egypt and then New Bedford, England, and then in Jordan. I mean, Lebanon, pardon me. You know, we could go on and on and on, quite a list of how the flow just started. And so as we were, what's the purpose of TCF? We stepped back and said, what's God doing? The Harrisons, the Givens. Harrisons and Givens went to Zaire and there was a revolution. They had to flee for their lives. Sadly, the Givens' children suffered some wounds that emotionally, spiritually, that they've struggled with the rest of their lives. You, you know, you don't think about this the way we should. We need to pray for the children of missionaries. Children of missionaries get battered. You know, we have Paul Bergard here. Paul Bergard's a missionary kid, survived. <laughs> A wonderful model of a man of God, a model of a father, a model of a husband. Brother, we appreciate you. So here's what God is doing. It's becoming apparent, so let's cooperate. <laughs> and so it became clear that that was God's new purpose for TCF, the distant fields of harvest. There are other churches in the city called to Tulsa. Praise God, that's true. There are other churches in the city that are evangelizing in Tulsa. There are other churches in the city that are feeding the poor. Praise God. God bless them. May their ministries expand. But for us, it was the distant fields of harvest. And we came to realize that our role was no longer to minister to Tulsa, but to minister to those distant fields. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about spheres, 2 Corinthians 10, 13 and following. Listen to this, rather extensive, but listen. We'll not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you, for we're not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach you, we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but in the hope that as your faith grows, we shall be within our sphere, even enlarged more by you, so as to preach the gospel even to regions beyond you, not to boast what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. Paul recognized the principle of spiritual spheres. And it's a blessing when any of us receives by revelation from God what our sphere is. <laughs> so we can fill it to the limit and leave those other spheres to those to whom God has given them. And TCF's leadership began to understand our sphere. Sometime in the 1980s, when TCF banked at what was then the first national bank, now it's Chase, for then it was Liberty, Chase, whatever. One of the officers of the bank came by to visit me, and that's when I was managing the business affairs of the church. And we had significant deposits at that time in First National Bank. He said, you know, as one of our customers, I'd like to know about you. Tell me about TCF. What's your church like? I said, let me explain it to you in terms a banker can understand. 
We're not a savings account in which we hoard assets. But we're a checking account into which God deposits assets and takes them out. And our prayer is that every year God will take out as many as he brings in. Now, I've realized over the years I shouldn't have said it that way. (laughs) Because we have to have a critical mass, don't we, to do this. Maybe I should have said we pray that every year God will bring in ten families and take out five. (laughs) That's a little more workable, isn't it? We we do need the critical mass. That's why a few years ago Bill Sullivan called us to begin our prayer advance program. And Susie... We appreciate so much the way you have so faithfully, dear sister, made it possible to implement that. The prayer being that God would bring into our body more people, not so we can get more numbers, not so we can get more bucks, not so we can in any way step back and say, we are a significant church, that's wicked. But more people to come and put their hand to the plow so we can more fully expand and reach out into that sphere to which God has called us as a church. And that, my friends, is not a wicked prayer. However, let's not make this mistake that those whom God brings into this body aren't just means to an end. But everyone that God brings into this body is a precious soul who becomes an organ in the body with us from whom we receive life, to whom we give life as together we walk under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It is important that we never look at each other as, well, here's a means to an end. But we do thank God We do thank God for those he brings to join us in the task. Neither does it mean that we have no responsibility for the geographical area in which this church lives. Isn't it marvelous to see what's happening over the years in Kendall Whittier School? That God has opened the doors to this congregation to go into that school and actually present the Word of God in a public school building. Glory be to His name. Nor does it mean we have no responsibility for those who inhabit the houses that surround this building. We have a stewardship for where God has placed us, yet we have that sphere. (laughs) Every army that is in battle has to take care of itself. They have to heal the wounded. Somebody has to provide the food. (laughs) Somebody has to provide the fuel for the tanks and everything else. And soldiers do need a time to sleep while somebody else takes their position. But if an army does nothing but just look after itself, no battle is ever won. 
And so it is important that we do look after ourselves, that these elders as so marvelously, I don't know any church in the world that has better shepherds in this church. But what's our purpose? Why are we in the world? Why are we here? We're here because of what's on that map. That's the sphere to which God has called us. We cannot deny that at times the road has not been easy. There have been times when significant numbers of this congregation has wanted us to turn away from that call. And the elders in prayer have never felt called to turn away from that call. And so we've had precious people leave us. And regardless of the emotional pain that we experience when someone leaves, weighed upon the scales of obedience to God on one hand and precious relationships on the other, obedience to God outweighs everything else. As a church, we want to be obedient to God. May he always speak his will clearly that we can obey it. Let me talk about TCF missionaries. From the very first, the decision was made that all TCF missionaries have to be members of the church. More than one reason. One was that we're praying that God will bring forth people from the church, and how can we handle those that aren't? <laughs> because we're expecting him to be faithful in what he has called us to do, and he has been, hasn't he? There's also the sense that those who go out from this church to the mission field really are members of TCF. They're just not in Tulsa. The elders of this church have shepherding responsibility for the church members who are in Honduras and Tajikistan and China and on and on. And so prayerfully they seek to fulfill that and when possible may have visit. Gordon, fortunately, in his travels, from time to time can drop in on a missionary. And one part of our budget is we have a, a part of our budget for missionary care. <laughs> and that can be used for, as we say, Gordon, sometimes others, as traveling about, the opportunity comes to travel a few extra miles and visit a missionary, encourage them, pray with them, and bring back a report about how the marriage is going, <laughs> how the kids are doing, uh, those kinds of things. We've already spoken of how God calls some of the most key people in the church early on. Do you know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful that God has allowed us to have back in this church on Sunday morning returning missionaries. Isn't that something? You know, I started making a list, and then I quit. Because I realized I was going to leave somebody out. <laughs> and then I thought about this. As you look around this, this congregation this morning, I don't think it would be an exaggeration for me to say half of the people here today have been on the mission field. Some long-term, some short-term, <laughs> some on a short mission trip. More than half, maybe two-thirds, <laughs> 
But I want to say this, those to whom God has given some sort of a long-term or lifetime call, it is such an honor to be in your presence. I think sometimes we become so familiar with one another that we forget about the fact that we're in the midst of those, we're in the presence of someone who bears those scars of battle, someone who gave up the prime years of their life, put their children at risk. We're in the presence of heroes. And I want to say to you who are returning missionaries, I honor you. On behalf of the church, thank you, not just for answering the call, but answering our call as you've gone forth. I think of Ray and Denise. Isn't it a blessing to have this couple with us? Shortly going to establish a new... Uh, base in Brazil we're going to miss you when you're gone <laughs> what a blessing it is to live in the presence of those whose life is taking the gospel into those places of darkness it's striking how many nations of the world this little church is touching you know, Heather, I was thinking about in the book of Revelation about that great chorus of tongues and people from all nations singing and praising God. Kind of reminds me of heart sounds and the work you're doing, sister. We thank God. Let us not be known in human realms for having a great church. But let us be known in the courts of heaven for being a church that is sought to hear the voice of God and having heard, been obedient. Let our reputation be there for that, not for anything the newspapers choose to write. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, immersing them in the name of the Father, actually ice into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and you will be with you. The Greek internally says, every day. Isn't that interesting? I'll be with you. Or actually it says, all the days until the end of the age. Now, for the last hundred years or so, it has been the custom in non-liturgical churches twice a year to have a revival meeting every spring and every fall. <laughs> and I know that because for many years I preached those revival meetings. Believe it or not, most of them are two weeks long. Every night folks show up in church for two solid weeks and you're tired as a preacher when you're through purpose of revival meetings now sometimes they're evangelistic meetings but revival meetings exist to as Paul wrote to Timothy to stir up the gift that is in you 
all of us get so routine in our lives that we every now and then need something to stir up, you know, the coals a little bit so the flame will burst. TCF, we don't have revival meetings. But next week will be the nearest thing to a revival meeting that we do have at TCF. We have our annual missions conference in which that is stirred up. The calling of God is stirred up. The rekindle the flame and passion to deliver those in darkness from the fires of hell. And let me say, sometimes I think we forget that. We get so focused on our missionaries that we forget why they've gone. People in Tajikistan are going to hell. So we send the Degnans. <laughs> People in China are going to hell, so we send another family. People in Brazil are going to hell, so Ray and Denise are going to Brazil. In our prayers, we need to remember really what it's all about. It's not just sending people somewhere. It's a battle. A battle to deliver people from the Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of God. And Jesus came unto them and saying, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and upon earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, immersing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you through all the days <laughs> until the end of the age. May God be praised.